Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs. I'm your host, Joan Kerr, inviting you to stay with us for this first program of the season when our guests take a critical look at the life, times, triumphs, and defeats of one of the major figures of European history, Napoleon Bonaparte. We're coming to you from the Senate Chamber of the Old Capitol Museum. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. It will also be available along with all programs in the series as a free podcast on iTunes. I'd like to thank our production partners, UITV, the Pentecost Museums, KRUI 89.7, and Information Technology Services. So why Napoleon? He was hailed as a military genius and a revolutionary hero, reviled for imperial ambitions and overreach, praised for the establishment of the Napoleonic Code, admired for his grasp of the power of propaganda in all its forms, and perhaps pitied for his death in exile. This complex and fascinating leader reshaped the continent of Europe, and although few Americans may recall it now, enabled the doubling of U.S. territory when he gave up French ambitions in North America, allowing Thomas Jefferson to make the Louisiana Purchase. Tonight we'll look at Napoleon as both an individual historical figure and as a larger-than-life phenomenon. While the historical record of Napoleon and his exploits is rich and under constant examination and interpretation, Napoleon himself was an active participant in the creation and propagation of his public image. Joining me on stage to explore the many layers of this complex man are, starting at the far end, Dorothy Johnson, University of Iowa Professor of Art and Art History. Nice to have you here, Dorothy. Uh, next to Dorothy is Sean O'Hara, and Sean's the director of the University of Iowa Museum of Art and co-curator of the exhibition now on display, Napoleon and the Art of Propaganda. Thanks for coming, Sean. Next to Sean is Heidi Krauss. Good to meet you, Heidi. Assistant Professor of Art and Art History and Studio Art, as well as co-director of the Dupree Gallery at Hope College in Holland, Michigan. Heidi is co-curator of the exhibition, along with Sean O'Hara. And uh, Jennifer Sessions is just next to me here, University of Iowa Associate Professor of History. So please welcome our guests. <laughs> Uh, Sean, if I could, I'd like to start with you. Uh, Napoleon's obviously an intriguing character, whatever year you might choose to take a look at his life and, and accomplishments and so on. But uh, we're talking about him in 2012, uh, 200 years after the great defeat and the Russian campaign. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the political and military aspects of his career throughout the program. But I wonder if we could try to get a little picture of the man uh, through the collection of Napoleonic art that you now have on display at the Museum of Art and called uh, Napoleon and the Art of Propaganda. Yes, well, uh, we try to choose exhibitions that are relevant both to the university and to the public at large. It is, uh, if anyone has noticed, uh, a presidential season. We thought it would be interesting to have an, uh, an exhibition that linked with uh, ideas of politics and power. Mm -hmm. And also, we happen to have some eminent specialists at the university in 19th century French art and history and culture, and so we thought having an exhibition on Napoleon made a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. We were also intrigued at the fact that the city of Iowa City uh, was not in fact the first uh, seat of Johnson County. The first seat of Johnson County lay just uh, uh, a mile from here. It was named Napoleon, Iowa, uh, between 1838 and 1839. Uh, it, they were intelligent people, and within a few months, they realized it flooded regularly. So they decided to move <laughs> camp up the hill, and by that point, 
uh, this was already slated for the new capital of the state of Iowa, so they named it, renamed it Iowa City. Mm -hmm. So because of those connections and also because if you look at the state flag of Iowa, you will see uh, the French tricolor with uh, an eagle an, or an imperial eagle, if you want to look at it that way, in the middle. And so we thought there were a number of reasons why uh, bringing the exhibition here would be, uh, would be relevant to a lot of what we studied. Well, and, and I just want to um, ask you to talk a little bit about what you think the role of a university art museum is, like the museum that we have, thankfully, on our campus, free and open to the public, uh, right. you know, very creative projects going on all the time. Well, we run a, a, a world-recognized museum, and so we have contacts uh, around the world, and we're able to bring material culture from uh, many collections to Iowa City. Uh, so that our students and our professors and our visitors can, can see the material, enjoy it, and, and use them for their work. And so because of that, we had the opportunity to bring this material to Iowa City and uh, also open people's eyes to new areas of, of, of thought and new topics. Uh, being a university art museum, we're uh, uh, definitely more flexible and more able to bring in interesting exhibits that people perhaps wouldn't think of going to. Uh, early 19th century French art uh, is not uh, as popular as it used to be, and so uh, we thought that it might be a good opportunity to do this. Uh, a lot of civic museums aren't able to bring in um, uh, rare exhibitions like this because um, they don't have the same educational mission we do, but we're able to bring in uh, perhaps sometimes controversial exhibitions so that people can see new new things and, and new ideas. And we thought that perhaps to phrase art in terms of propaganda would be a, an interesting, thought-provoking approach for an art exhibition, particularly during the uh, presidential elections. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Dorothy and, and Heidi, I'd, I'd like to ask both of you to talk about this particular collection and the work you've done researching these pieces that are on display. Uh, Heidi, I'll go to you. I know you're co-curator. I am. Well, it's been uh, it, it really a pleasure for me to work on such a rich collection and also a collection that has not had a lot of scholarly attention. Um, it, it's been seen, of course, you know, throughout the world and, and also the United States, but it hasn't been seen in this way. And what I mean specifically is that these works of art are propagandistic. They're not just aesthetic pieces, right? They have a deeper meaning um, behind what we just see on the surface. And so the opportunity to investigate that critically um, has been really a joy. And it's something that is missing to a large degree in scholarship of the period. Um, so again, the, the desire, the, um, uh, the need really uh, to investigate these works uh, on a deeper level is what really spearheads. Uh, my interest and my involvement with, with the project. Now, when you say that these are specifically propagandistic pieces, does that mean Napoleon and his close circle hired the artists, uh, approved designs, or does it mean that people just wanted to win favor with Napoleon and so they they worked in a certain fashion? I think both. Um, you have to remember, of course, a time in which we're working, and this is after the revolution. A lot of the Ancien Regime has been, been done away with. And so who, is, who then will be funding these sources uh, of art will be, obviously, the state. Uh, so the state at the time would be Napoleon and his regime. So if an artist wanted to be successful in this time period, especially a period where uh, history painting had really been on the decline, then one would go to Napoleon. Uh, so you find artists such as uh, Jacques-Louis David, who is his first painter, you know, he was an artist who actually uh, worked so, uh, was so involved, rather, with the revolution and in images of 
of the revolution that we see. And so for him to make this kind of shift now from the republic to empire, um, it's, a, it's a big question. And, and of course, in, in my mind, um, it, he obviously had to make a living, uh, in addition, certainly, to, uh, to you know, pursuing his own art and aesthetic interests. So you know, certainly artists had to kind of go where their bread was, was buttered, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there something you'd like to say on that score, Jen? It, it looked to me as though an idea had been sparked. As <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the things that, that's always fascinated me about the period of the French Revolution and the Empire is is this question of survival and the ways that artists, but but ordinary people, politicians, you know, pretty much everybody in France and eventually in Europe had to find a way to make a place in. A, a world that is very rapidly changing from, from you know, a monarchy founded on principles of divine right to a republic founded on principles of popular sovereignty and popular democracy um, with fatal consequences, the famous <laughs> guillotine for, for failure to participate democratically in the right ways to empire under, under Napoleon. And so the, this question, you know, artists are some of the more visible places that, that we see this, these strategies of survival at work, um, and and somebody like David and his students are going to go on after the fall of Napoleon, then to have to work for a restored monarch and and a new kind of monarchy in the 18 teens and twenties. Um, so there's a whole kind of generational experience here uh, for artists and and for all kinds of ordinary people as well in terms of of negotiating very quickly shifting strands. Right. right. Uh, Dorothy, Sean said earlier that uh, early 18th century, uh, early 19th century art is not as popular as it once was. Um, you are an expert in aesthetics from this period. Um, can you can you tell us something about what was in fashion in this era? Uh, well, of course, for me, it's never out of fashion. Uh, I'm I'm teaching a course now on David de Delacroix. I just finished writing a book on that, and I've written extensively on David and the artists that worked like him for Napoleon. And so um, I, I think there's always a tremendous fascination with the Napoleonic period because of the uh, immense charisma of this personality and all that he was able to achieve, how he came from uh, really a place that wasn't France, came from Corsica, mm -hmm. of course, and he rose through the military ranks. And I think that's why throughout this show you see so many representations of Napoleon in his military persona. Um, and what's fascinating to me about this show and so exciting, I finally uh, have so many works that I can have students go and look at in, in the museum from this period, um, is that there, there's an incredible range of destinations that the works were originally made for. So Napoleon had his whole team of artists working for him. David was his first painter, as Heidi mentioned, but all of David's students and the artists around them and sculptors and so forth were basically just working on Napoleonic iconography. And it was completely under the control of Napoleon. And so you see during the period of his reign, his iconography is very stable, even though in a variety of guises, whether military or as emperor, uh, as first council and so forth. But we also have a lot of objects in the show that come from his legacy after he was no longer in power. Therefore, 
he no longer has control over his image. And then you see variations and what, what gets carried forward, what gestures, what imagery, the military campaigns, uh, the disappointment after his mm -hmm. fall from power and so forth. Um, and we have a number of items that come from the 1840s when his remains were brought back to France and uh, his tomb was created under uh, Louis Philippe. So mm -hmm. it, the show is very rich, not only in terms of the period in which Napoleon lived, but uh, in terms of his legacy afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, this discussion of, um, of some of those pieces that were created 20 years after his death, that when one walks into the, into the uh, exhibit, the first painting you see, as you know, Heidi, I'll, I'll direct this question to you, is a very sort of personal, up close with Napoleon uh, uh, picture. But the little, the little um, key to the painting indicates that this was painted, uh, what, 20 years after his death, and is a pose that he perhaps would not have approved had he, had he been still at the height of his power. Maybe you could tell people what to look for in that painting. Uh, well, you're referring to the, the work by Delaroche, yes. and the painting in particular is one of uh, Napoleon in his, in his uh, office. And um, it's, it's a piece that was done by Delaroche, as you rightly mentioned, after, long after Napoleon's death, but one that was greatly inspired, though, um, by works that had actually been created during Napoleon's reign and during his life, uh, in particular, um, a painting done in 1812 by David, also of Napoleon, uh, in, in his office uh, at, at the Tuileries. And uh, so, of course, I, I'm assuming what you're referring to is, is when Napoleon has his hand uh, put into his jacket, which is kind of the quintessential image of Napoleon, right, that we all kind of have come, uh, have come to know. And it, it's always been curious to me why that came about and, and how, where, where did this image, where did this iconography come from? And uh, so when I was doing the, the exhibition, I did a little research on it. Um, and I found out that uh, there was actually a really great article written uh, in the Art Bulletin in uh, 1995, I believe, uh, and, and this exact issue was discussed as to where did, where did this come from. And uh, it's interesting because the, the idea of putting one's hand in one's jacket like this actually goes back to even ancient, uh, ancient Rome. Um, and to the orators. This is a very oratory pose. Uh, and also there was books uh, during the 18th century that also revived this kind of interest in, uh, if you will, being manly. And, and uh, also um, how, how a gentleman should behave. Um, so these were all things that were very much associated then with the hand being put in one's jacket. So that's one theory. You know, a lot of people though also said, oh, well, he had a stomach ulcer. And so he was mm -hmm. putting his hand here to cover his mm -hmm. stomach ulcer. Mm -hmm. And I mean, really crazy harebrained ideas. Uh, but again, this is all the lore, right? This is the myth that is Napoleon, so trying to kind of dissect this. Um, so the Delaroche is a very interesting piece um, that we have in the exhibition, and it's one that when one sees it, you go, ah, that's Napoleon. You know, this is a Napoleon that I know, which contrasts to if you go downstairs, you'll see an image um, after Gerhard in which Napoleon is shown with laurels in his hair and, and um, looking uh, very much the, the picture of a Roman emperor, really reviving the Ancien Regime even, you know, going back to... Uh, to Louis XIV. Uh, so that's an image, though, that we're not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. We're seeing him like that. You know, we're much more comfortable, perhaps, with, with seeing Napoleon, again, in his study at work. Um, but what's interesting in that piece is you'll note Napoleon's eyes. Um, it was done, of course, this painting was done years after the Battle of Waterloo, and it's almost as if we, as a viewer, can look into his eyes and kind mm -hmm. of sense that all is not going to end well. Mm -hmm. um, he clearly, he doesn't have the same kind of vigor um, and um, 
stride in his step, if you will, that he does with the image, for example, that's downstairs here with the laurel leaves in his hair, again, looking the picture of a Roman emperor. Mm -hmm. It's almost as if Delaroche could foresee the defeat. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, we know he did because he painted it long after. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's a very interesting image, and it's an image that's very loaded. And, um, you know, as with all art, I think it's great if we can go to those works with an open mind and see what we can bring to those works. And it's, it's always, of course, interesting to know what the artist had in mind, but what do we bring to that art and what would Napoleon have thought of it? Yeah. Are there, a, um, is there another um, particularly interesting piece you'd like to direct people to? His death mask is there? His death mask is, is fantastic. Um, it's kind of, it's difficult for a curator, isn't it? Goodness, to pick um, one's favorite piece. Um, yeah. I must say that the darling Sean knows this. Um, my favorite is uh, the Giraudet. There's a beautiful Giraudet drawing in which you see Napoleon in profile. And he, uh, uh, it's a beautiful drawing that it's kind of kooky though, in the same, same you know, idea because he's, the head is literally floating almost in clouds. Um, we have lost any sense of Napoleon being really French in, in his. In, in, his, uh, in his profile, he has a very Roman nose and a strong <laughs> chin, and he looks like, like Augustus. He looks like a Caesar, <laughs> ever the Roman emperor. So a great work, to be sure. Yeah, wow. Well, uh, we're just about done with this segment. Any concluding thought from um, Sean or, or Dorothy? Perhaps Jen is going to stay with us for the next segment. Well, if uh, I can add, uh, you mentioned the death mask. Yeah. And uh, this was taken by his doctor, uh, Anton Marchi, uh, in 1821 when Napoleon died, and uh, it was recast in uh, 1832. Uh, but what's, what's particularly interesting about that piece, and it isn't quite a work of art, I mean, it sort of is, but, but is that you can use it to compare to all the other paintings of Napoleon, because this is the one image that we have that is probably as accurate as you're going to get. I mean, it's his death mask, so he wasn't feeling too well when it was taken. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> having said that, you can actually, you can actually compare. Um, here is a man with a hooked nose and kind of thin features, and you saw that um, uh, uh, in the earlier portraits of, of, of Napoleon. Uh, but then you start seeing him fill out. He starts looking more like a Roman emperor. His features are more regular, and he looks more like the coins of Julius Caesar and, 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 and Augustus Caesar. And so you see uh, how he transforms. But then at the end of the exhibition, you go back to his original face, and you realize, gosh, you know, they, the artist really did a job on him. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, he looks like an American politician, mm -hmm. uh, perfect features and good-looking and whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know. <laughs> uh, yes, the uh, the death mask was used by Francois Rude for his his mon monumental sculpture of Napoleon awakening to immortality, and it's amazing how he used that as a model. But the face of Napoleon in his sculpture goes back to the early years of the 19th century when uh, Napoleon had been compared to. Um, the most beautiful heroes of antiquity, including Alexander and Augustus. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. wow, wonderful! So everyone needs to go see the exhibition. Let's give details on where they can can see all of this art. I'll turn to you, Sean. Right. Well, there's there are two venues. One is the Old Capitol, and we have uh, a selection of of uh, flashier, uh, more gold, um, <laughs> and that's located just downstairs in the Old Capitol. And then we have a larger exhibition in the Black Box Theater at the Iowa Memorial Union, which is a sort of a hop, skip, and a jump uh, from uh, where we are right now. 
Wonderful. Thank you so much. So Dorothy Johnson, Sean O'Hara, and Heidi Krause. We'll see you a little later, Heidi. And, uh, and Jenna's going to stay with me. So please, thank our guests in this first segment. So this is World Canvas. I'm Joan Kerr, and two new guests are joining us now for this segment. Uh, just sitting down now is Russ Gannam, Director of the University of Iowa Division of World Languages, Literatures, and Cultures. Welcome, Russ. Thank you for coming. And Anna Barker is next to him. She's University of Iowa Assistant Professor of Asian and Slavic Languages and Literatures, and you already know historian Jen Sessions. So uh, let's now get into Napoleon himself and sort of take a deeper look at, at him as an historical figure, um, you know, creator of an empire. Um, who was he in the history of France and, in fact, in the history of the world? Uh, big question, but I'll start with you, Jen. <laughs> it is indeed a big question. Um, I, I went and looked in the Library of Congress catalog um, earlier this week to see, you know, how many biographies of Napoleon are there in the in the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., and there, there are pretty much about the same number of biographies of Napoleon as there are of Hitler, um, which tells you something about the sort of the popularity of Napoleon and the interest in Napoleon as one of the really sort of instantly recognizable iconic figures in European history, um, even for American audiences. Um, there, there are more biographies of Washington and Lincoln than there are of either of those two <laughs> figures, but, uh, but by, by less than one might have thought. Um, but, okay, so Napoleon, I mean, the, 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 the fascination with Napoleon, I think, comes from two places. One is the, the power of the individual, which is something that has always interested readers of history, is the, the power of one person to change the course of history. Um, and, and Napoleon, you know, he, he comes from nowhere. He's nobody. Um, as, as Dorothy mentioned before, he's born in Corsica, 1769, when, you know, Corsica has been French for literally a few weeks um, <laughs> at the time of his birth. So he's just barely French. He speaks French with, with a heavy Italian accent. Um, when he goes to military school in, in, in the metropole in, in mainland France, um, you know, he's made fun of and ostracized because he talks funny and he doesn't have the right clothes um, and, and he's short. Um, and, and so he has this very strange relationship with France and yet somehow comes to represent a big chunk of French history. Um, and he gets remembered in the long run for, for his military victories, which is, I think, the place where he really makes his reputation as an individual is through his, his military innovations and the way that, that he manages to turn things around for the armies of revolutionary France at a moment when things have have not been going very well for them, um, and he and he shows that you know a man who has made his career basically because of the French Revolution, he would have would not have gone very far in the armies of the monarchy, um, but by breaking down aristocratic privilege, the the revolution opens up a path to success for him that wouldn't wouldn't have been possible otherwise, and he takes that and he runs with it. Um, in Italy and, and, then, and then across Europe. Um, and so the, he's, he's fascinating, I think, as, as an individual figure. He's a self-made man in a way that resonates with, with American audiences. Um, but then he gets remembered in France not 
as the emperor, not as, the, as yeah. the guy who pulled himself up by his bootstraps to become emperor of France, but as, as the embodiment of the values of the French Revolution. And so, you know, it's no accident that that portrait of him as Julius Caesar is, is not the image that French people have when we talk about Napoleon. They have the, the image of the, the military commander in his gray greatcoat and his bicorn hat who, who fought alongside his men on the front lines, who slept with them and ate with them in the camp, um, and, and was one of the ordinary people. Um, and, he, and he really does get remembered in France as, as the the man who, um, who represented all that was good about the French Revolution, careers mm. open to talent, egalitarianism, mm -hmm. um, individual freedom and possibility um, that is a, in large degree how we remember him in the United States today. Um, Europeans and other parts of the world had, had different ideas about him, although you know, even, even in, in some of the places that he conquered, um, he did captivate people as a, as a kind of romantic hero. There's also then a memory of Napoleon as, as the conqueror, as the despot who, who tried to crush um, other nations. Mm -hmm. so, the, so there's a very interesting mixed legacy yeah. there. Yeah. Um, well, Anna and, and Russ, let me turn to you for your impressions, that, that same question. The, the, yeah. It's really interesting because if you look at Napoleon and how he's regarded in France today, the image is very ambiguous. Um, I can remember going over to France, and I've been there several times, obviously, and just striking up a conversation with friends about Napoleon because his image in the United States is pretty positive. Um, you know, he's a, a very popular figure, and so I was struck because you don't see a lot of images of Napoleon in, in France. Obviously, if you go to Paris, you see Les Invalides, you go to the Place de la Concorde, and you see the obelisk, which was brought back from, from Egypt. Um, but I kind of wondered, well, what do the French feel about Napoleon? And I have to say that in many cases, the French do not have a favorable opinion of him now. They're not exactly proud of him. You know, in some ways, they are. But I can remember some people saying to me, well, Napoleon was the Hitler of France. Um, and the fact that you know, there was disappointment with what happened, especially after he came to power, that you know, Jennifer mentioned despotism, also the, the suppression of rights, the fact that the, the revolution was almost sort of undone by Napoleon. He, in, he embodied it on the one hand, but destroyed it on the other. And so I think that that leaves a very ambiguous legacy. Mm -hmm. and, and I, I would just like to add um, to what Jen and Russ were saying. Um, it's fascinating to what extent Napoleon was an outsider in France. He was born in Corsica and actually got a chance to visit Corsica this summer. They adore him there. I mean, he's the, he's the favorite son. The marketplace um, has an enormous statue of Napoleon. There's a, um, an equestrian statue of Napoleon surrounded with his four brothers um, right by the shore. So um, Ajaccio still remembers him as the boy who became the emperor. Um, the street where the house stands, um, the house is there, the house is a museum, is actually named after his mo mother, Letitia, who was um, adored by Napoleon. He was the second son, but he really stood at the tiller of the family. And I saw a fascinating lithograph in the home um, in Corsica where all of them are leaving Corsica. Papa is dead by now. Mama is um, hugging the three daughters lovingly. The boys are all rowing the boat. And Napoleon is standing um, at the tiller, guiding his family towards France. Uh, they, had to, they had to leave Corsica for political reasons. Um, but it's fascinating also that Josephine, 
was also an islander. She came from Martinique, and she also spoke French with a thick accent. She spoke with a Creole accent. So it's amazing that these two um, islanders who came to France found each other in the madness of the French Revolution. The more I read about Napoleon and Josephine, the more I marvel at the fact that they actually survived the revolution, because they were so close to being executed. Um, and they, in, in this whole um, crumbling world, they found each other and made something of themselves, which is a, a terrific story. Um, and just going back with, to what Jen was saying, that Napoleon influenced um, the history of Europe tremendously. If we look at the map of the EU right now, it looks an awful lot like Napoleonic <laughs> Europe. Um, <laughs> Portugal did not join the continental system. Greece at the time was still under Ottoman rule. So was Serbia and all of that Slavic section of Southern Europe. Um, and England, of course, did not join. They were the only country who were opposing Napoleon. But the rest of Europe was very much, though, influenced by Napoleon. and. Um, he actually created the preconditions for the unification of Germany in the 19th century and the unification of uh, Italy because he created a buffer between himself and a very strong Prussia. Um, he united all of the disjointed German principalities um, to the south of Prussia into the Confederation of the Rhine. So uh, when Bismarck came into being, it was a lot easier to just join two pieces of Germany into one instead of hundreds of pieces of Germany into mm -hmm. one. Um, and it's the same with Italy. Um, and um, just something that Russ was saying, to what extent Napoleon is compared to Hitler, um, there's a, a very bizarre and odd connection with Hitler. When he took over Austria, he decided that it would be just fair to have Napoleon II, who was buried in Vienna, to join his father in Paris. And he brought the, the body of the son of Napoleon that he had with his second wife and reburied him in Paris to be with his father, the young boy who was Napoleon II, um, died young, never ruled France, obviously, um, and had the title of the King of Rome, which was the title which was denied to Caesar. So um, many, many factors um, that can be explored, and um, Napoleon is still very relevant in European history today. And uh, I, I don't know if you'd like to talk just a little bit about uh, the colonization under Napoleon, um, because I know some of your recent research kind of goes into this. Yeah. Um, if we think about the history of European imperialism, Napoleon suddenly becomes much more prominent. Um, and also, I think some of the, the <laughs> ambiguity of the Napoleonic legacy becomes um, also particularly evident uh, because Napoleon was an empire builder in Europe. The, the, the conquest of Europe was envisaged as a recreation of the Roman Empire. Um, but he also really, I think, transformed Europe's relationship with the rest of the world as well. I mean, you mentioned the the impact in in the United States. Um, if we look at the Americas, the 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 upheaval of the Napoleonic Wars sort of allowed the young United States to push west and build its own continental empire in the first half of the the 19th century. Um, but Napoleon also undid a great deal of the. Um, the, the, the reform that the revolutionaries had instituted in the French colonies, and there, there's some speculation about the extent to which Josephine, as the daughter of a Martinican plantation and slave owner, was, was instrumental in this. But the revolutionaries had, um, in the face of 
massive slave revolts in the Caribbean islands had abolished slavery in 1794, um, Napoleon reinstitutes slavery. He sends an army to, to, um, to the Caribbean, to, to Haiti initially in 1801 to, to reinstitute slavery, and, and that army is defeated um, by, the, by what is going to become the, the first and only successful slave revolution in, in the modern Americas um, in Haiti uh, and create the, in the island of Saint-Domingue, create the, the independent republic of Haiti. Um, but in the other French colonies, slavery is reestablished in, in Martinique and in Guadeloupe and in the, in the French islands in the Indian Ocean as well. Um, and Napoleon's vision of himself, what you're going to see in the exposition, the exhibition of Napoleon as the great emperor, is going to become one of the, the bases for modern European expansion in the later 19th and 20th centuries. He, he goes out, he invades uh, Egypt, actually, first in, in 1798, with the idea that, that he is going to bring civilization back to a part of the world that had once had a great civilization, but had then fallen into, into decline. Um, and that the French armies were, were going to allow Egypt to rise once again as a, as a great civilization in their own terms, but also with the addition of, of nice modern French um, culture. And that idea of, of Europe as having a mission to export its civilization and its culture is going to become the, the foundational ideology of European imperialism in the modern period. So, so Napoleon has, has a big influence there in, in empire terms. Yeah. And, and the legacy of that is still felt in Haiti today because um, the world stops trading with Haiti after Napoleon crushed the Haitian Revolution under Toussaint Louverture. And um, of all people, William Wordsworth um, yeah. wrote a poem about Toussaint Louverture, a sonnet, and a sonnet about the fallen angel, Napoleon. So um, the intellectuals of the time period definitely had a very um, polarized opinion of, of Napoleon, such as um, Beethoven, who dedicates his... Mm -hmm third symphony to Napoleon and then um, takes the dedication away and um, the, the exuberance of the first movement then is followed by a funeral march um, like second movement because there is this very polarized attitude towards Napoleon even during his, his lifetime. Well, you see that in the Romantics in England, too, um, you know, that there was great disappointment. Uh, there was great hope at first, and then great disappointment. You see that especially in the poetry of the Romantic period. One other thing that um, I might want to mention, just in terms of his legacy in France, is that, uh, on the more positive side of things, is that we have the Napoleonic Code, or the Code Civil, uh, which is basically the system of laws that governs France now, that originated in the Napoleonic period, and it's obviously undergone various forms. Uh, throughout, you know, uh, the two centuries since Napoleon's death, but nonetheless, the the system that you have in place pretty much resembles what was uh, instituted by Napoleon during his reign. Uh, the educational system, the baccalauréat, the uh, the exam you have to take to graduate from high school, started under uh, the, the Napoleonic period, and and then um, you've got. Uh, uh, the system of departments where France is divided up into, you know, 95 sort of provinces or administrative units. And that's part of the Napoleonic legacy as well. Another thing that, that, that I might say is that we shouldn't forget the influence of his nephew, Louis-Napoleon uh, Bonaparte, who governed France from 1850 to 1870. His reign ended with the Franco-Prussian War. 
But the city of Paris, as it exists today, is basically Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte's legacy, you know, with the avenues and the perspectives and the, uh, and the apartment buildings with the rounded roofs, things like that. All of that was, uh, you know, uh, designed by Baron von Osman and then Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte. And also you've got the, the, uh, the empire style of furniture and architecture, sure. which, uh, which, which lives today. So you kind of have, um, you know, on the positive end of things, a lasting effect, which I think has been quite, quite beneficial and sort of uh, gives us a more uh, favorable image of Napoleon. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think the 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 positive um, how how people feel about that depends on on where they stand in French society because uh, the the rebuilding of Paris in the second half of the nineteenth century came at the expense of the Parisian working class, who were mm-hmm. expelled from the center of the city um, and the 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 current configuration not just in the architecture but in terms of the urban geography where where wealthy people live in the center city and poor people live in the suburbs the reverse mm-hmm. of what patterns that we have in American cities. That really starts with the, the second empire of the 1850s and 60s. Um, and the Napoleonic Code, I think it's, it's influenced not just in France, but actually it's copied around the world. The most um, Many of the independent countries of Latin America um, who win independence and revolutions in the 1820s adopt the Napoleonic Code as their legal code, um, which has, has democratic aspects, has egalitarian aspects in that one of its foundational principles is equality before the law and uniformity of law for all citizens. Um, but it also has um, deeply patriarchal elements as well because the original Napoleonic Code says for the very first time that women are not citizens and are not people of legal standing Mm -hmm. in France. Um, And so returns women to the condition of legal minority that they had, um, many of them, been subjected to during the old regime, but not all. And this now applies that to all women. This this is luckily no longer the case. This is one of the things that has been reformed in the Napoleonic Code. But um, but women in France don't get political rights until 1944, largely as a result of the power of the Napoleonic Code. Wow. Fascinating. Well, we're going to wrap up this little segment, but all of you will be back up here a little bit later. So Jem Sessions, Anna Barker, and Russ Gammon, thank you so much. And we'll see you again in just a little while. Uh, so this is World Canvas. I'm Joan Karen, bringing up our, our next guests now. Uh, Rene Lequona is uh, going to come up here for just a second, and uh, she's at the far end. Just next to her is Rachel Josselson, soprano, and Marianne Wilson-Kimber is just next to me. She's a musicologist. These are all folks from our University of Iowa School of Music, and I'm so pleased to have them here. We're going to hear a wonderful performance in just a minute, and we're going to talk a little bit about musical arts in this, in this uh, period, the late 18th and uh, early 19th century, incredibly rich uh, in in, uh, in music, and uh, we're going to talk a little bit with Marion about some of the names everyone will know, Beethoven, uh, you know, uh, Tchaikovsky, others, but uh, a little earlier, we're going to hear some music uh, performed by both Rennie and Rachel, and you're going to sing something by Gretry. Yes. So um, why don't you introduce the, the era through Gretry to us? Uh, tell us something about the music you're going to be singing. Yes, well, um, in France at this time, um, Basically, opera was limited to opera comique, light-hearted romantic comedies, and um, this is a 
lesser known one, but Gretry, uh, I found out from my colleague, Marion Wilson Kimber, was Marie Antoinette's favorite composer. <laughs> and we, we were researching and trying to imagine what might Napoleon be listening to on a regular basis, and we're speculating that this might have been one of the operas that he was very familiar with. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Rainy, the piece you're going to be playing is an aria? Yes, but you know what? I'm more prepared to talk about the Beethoven Pathetique Sonata. Oh, because, <laughs> because I'm piano-centric. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about that. So today, we're, I'm going to accompany, I'm going to pretend I'm an orchestra, and um, Rachel Jocelyn's going to sing the Grey Tree aria, Ariette, or, and, but next week, I'm going to be playing Beethoven Pathetique, or the first and second movements as part of the Tolstoy reading. And so I think, I think we've mentioned Beethoven. Beethoven is the most famous disappointed person, disappointed <laughs> with Napoleon. And, and the, other, the other interesting thing, I, I, I was reading about Napoleon, and he just left this huge mark. I think no country in mainland Europe was left untouched by Napoleon. So I was thinking about Beethoven's legacy and Beethoven's kind of, um, you know, what he left the world. And I mean... Brahms was so paralyzed by the mystique and the greatness of Beethoven that it took him something like 19 years to release his first symphony. <laughs> and so talking about a long shadow throughout the 19th century, I mean, Beethoven was just huge. He's the man. He's transformative. Um, and, and, you know, part of this was his unique... So I've just turned the entire thing over to Beethoven. I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, so great. kind of maybe making an analogy. And the analogy breaks down, especially in regards to power, because I don't think Beethoven was particularly interested in power. And, mm -hmm. and Napoleon is the power guy. Yeah. And, um, but, but Beethoven, through his uh, manipulation of, of musical materials, he... he he transformed music, and, um, and so many people would be inspired by him, and so many, everyone had to grapple with him. It took generations for people mm -hmm. to finally say, you know, I, that's not really my thing. I'm not doing Beethoven, you know, but <laughs> most, that took, that took years and years and generations. Mm -hmm. So I think, and Beethoven also was a person of his times. He knew, um, Anna Barker just mentioned about the famous Eroica story, I mean, Beethoven followed, you know, here was someone who seemed to be, you know, challenging old established divine rights. Yeah, yeah, God made me king. Yeah, um, you know, he, he, Napoleon was challenging that and Beethoven was sympathetic to that. And then when Napoleon made himself, I don't know, what do you call it, emperor, um, you know, Beethoven was so disappointed. And, and so Beethoven was also a man of his times. He expressed enlightenment ideals in his conversation books with people. I mean, he was really interested in issues, in human issues of how they govern mm -hmm. each other, how we govern ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, I like to tell a few little stories around the sure. Beethoven, sure. Uh, Aurora story. We, we have this story. It comes from Ferdinand Ries, who is one of Beethoven's students. And Beethoven declared, is Napoleon, a mortal like any other man, will he too trample on the rights of human beings and become a tyrant? Um, but Beethoven had a love-hate relationship with Napoleon, like so many of the people that we've been hearing about from the other speakers. He had already written two pro-Habsburg, i.e. anti-Napoleonic patriotic songs. He had been given uh, the opportunity to write a Napoleon sonata by a music publisher and had turned it down. Um, 
And, but we know he wrote the symphony with the name Bonaparte, and, and at some point he thought maybe he would go to Paris and, and get a job. And obviously, if you're going to stay in Vienna, at some point it's no longer politically correct to call your symphony Bonaparte. Um, and, and also, he got paid from Prince Lobkowitz, um, who he then dedicated the symphony to. Um, but the whole notion of the symphony of, of heroism um, takes it from the, the specific the Napoleonic specific to a, a larger abstract realm, which was so important for the Romantics. Um, the one thing I also might add is that we really have the French to thank for some aspects of Beethoven's style because he was influenced by some of the music that came out of the French Revolution. So uh, scholars have made that link to some of those French composers. So we, we, we may not, Beethoven may have been irritated at Napoleon, but he did take something from French music. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Well, I, I, let's go hear the uh, great tree. Uh, okay. What would you like to say about this piece before we... Um, you know, I think I would like to read the translation. Yeah, please do, please do. Um, I, I just was completely unable to find anything on the internet about this opera. I couldn't find a synopsis or anything. I mean, I think it was probably very formulaic, you know. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy, they fall in love, and then they hate each other, and then they get together in the end. I'm presuming just from the text. So I translated word for word the French, and um, I did my best to at least give an understanding of what this aria is about. Um, so it begins, I am with you very unhappy, very unhappy. Listen. I had believed that you were docile and sweet. You have been mistaken about my graciousness. I am with you very unhappy, very unhappy. Listen. And you ceaselessly, you have followed me, searching for my eyes, whispering to me. And you smile at me with grace, beautiful grace. Do you believe that one doesn't see this? You are pitiful. You become dark and sad. You never leave me, not more than my shadow. Always by my side. I am with you very, very unhappy. Listen to me. <laughs> and this is Agatha's art, uh, Aria? This is, uh, the character is named Agat, um, I guess Agathe. in French we would say, yeah. Agatha. And um, that's basically all that I know about this piece. And the opera is? L'Ami de la Maison. L'Ami de la Maison, the friend of the, friend of the house. Like friend of the house. A friend of the family, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great. By Gretry. So let's go to that performance now. Thanks, Rachel.
Fantastic. So there was a performance by soprano Rachel Josselson and by pianist Rene Lacuona. Thank you so much for performing the great tree for us. And I still have Marion um, here with me on stage, and we're going to talk a little bit about some of the other composers of this time. Um, Tchaikovsky and the creation of the 1812 Overture. We've talked a lot about France. We've talked a little bit about the U.S. We've talked um, uh, about some other areas in Europe, but the feeling in Russia might be somewhat different toward Napoleon. Yes, and I think I can compare Tchaikovsky to Beethoven. Beethoven was captivated with Napoleon. Tchaikovsky was commissioned to write this piece and was not so thrilled with the commission. Um, and he wrote the piece in a week. And he told his patroness, that patronish, Majavan Mech, that it was very loud and very noisy and without any artistic merit. <laughs> <laughs> However, of course, it was a hit and um, became popular. He did publish it and program it. Um, it was commissioned for an exhibition in Russia, but it ended up being associated with the Church of Our Savior, a church that was um, commemorated to the War of 1812 and, and the victims, um, and, and, and to commemorate the Russian victory. Uh, so the piece, of course, has the Marseillaise in it to represent the French, uh, even though that's really revolutionary, it's not quite Napoleonic. And it has Russian folk songs, uh, Russian chant, a little bit of Russian music that's taken from one of Tchaikovsky's opera he was recycling. Um, and of course ends with a great uh, climax, God Save the Tsar. And so, so it really ends up being a piece more about Russian patriotism than about Napoleon per se, but of course mm -hmm. wouldn't have happened without him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and he did it just because he was commissioned to do this piece. His heart wasn't in it at all, except in a negative Apparently way. Apparently not. Yeah, yeah. Huh. You said you have a, a story about um, Liszt. Yes, uh, um, Liszt was, when he was young, Liszt, the great virtuoso pianist, was compared to the young Napoleon. And they actually said, the critics said, he looks like the young Napoleon. This goes back to the the art exhibit. Um, and if you look at the portraits of Napoleon in Liszt, to me, they don't look a thing alike. But apparently Liszt was so, such a physical and violent player that somehow going to see Liszt play was like going, living through a Napoleonic battle. You know, he conquered the piano, he led the orchestra at, into battle as a general, and, and, and somehow that was the only expression that worked for, yeah. de for describing describing Liszt. So you can see that even long after Napoleon was gone, mm -hmm. his image was having an impact on, on the romantics. So it's this idea of personal charisma and yes. uh, being yes, an individual. Great, yeah. Great, yeah. Huh. So did uh, Napoleon and, and did his times create sort of a different relationship in terms of patronage? With yes, the Napoleon was a great patron, not just of art, but of music. He knew what he liked. He liked opera. He did go to the Opera Comique. Um, he, in fact, liked Italian music. He hired Giovanni Passiello, the Italian conduct, uh, composer, to come work for him. He wrote a lot of religious music for him. Um, and he controlled what operas were performed in Paris. So, uh, and these operas were sometimes used for propaganda reasons. Uh, Josephine's favorite composer, Gaspare Stantini, put on an opera, Fernand Cortez, which was supposed to inspire confidence in Napoleon's 
Spanish, uh, Spanish campaigns. It was about the conquering of Mexico. Um, and it even had live horses on the stage for extra, extra effect. But apparently audiences were very sympathetic to the Spanish priests in the opera, and so the opera was pulled after 13 <laughs> performances. So um, Napoleon really had his fingers in, in, in the musical pie. He actually revoked the privilege of um, being able to run your own theater company, so there were only eight that were sanctioned, and three of those were opera companies. Um, and so by 1811, if you wanted to put on a concert in Paris, you had to go ask permission for the date. And hmm. so he really was, was in control of musical life there. Yeah, yeah. And how much of this uh, remained the case after his time? Um, well, uh, it was state-funded, state mm-hmm. but not with the kind of individualistic hand. Opera became more commercial and became more of a commercial venture in the Romantic period. Huh. So, so what else uh, about this musical period can you tell us, maybe not focus just on Napoleon, but about musical trends? What, uh, were we in a, a period of, um, we've talked a little bit about Beethoven here and what a, what a change he brought to the way music was being composed and appreciated and aspired toward and so on. And Beethoven lived until when, 1830-something. 20, uh, 27. Yeah, 27. So, um, so that's happening, certainly kind of coming from the Germanic side, but... Yeah, it, take, it takes a while to get to the rest of Europe. Um, you know, what, what would have been going on uh, when Napoleon would be, in, in France, would have been a more 18th century style. Uh, um, um, of course, you know, Beethoven is the Napoleon of, yeah. of music for this time period, just really transforming music and, and making it express an individualistic point of view. I can come back to that point about mm-hmm. the importance of the individual and the power of the individual, and then, you know, that's what we expect music to do now from the Romantic period, is to express individual viewpoints. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you. Marion Wilson-Kimber, thank you so much for joining us, and of course, our performers as well, Rachel and Renee, thank you very much. So this is World Canvas, as you know, a production of international programs at the University of Iowa, and we invite you to watch the rebroadcast of this program on UITV or listen on Iowa Public Radio or KRUI-FM. Links to the broadcast can be found at International Program's website, which is international.uiowa.edu, and the full World Canvas series can be seen on UITV and will be available as a downloadable podcast on iTunes. I'd like to invite you to our next program in the series, which is on October 5th. I will not be in this room on that evening, but we'll be across the way in the University Capital Center in room 2780, I think a really interesting program called the Latino Midwest, and I hope you'll join us for that. That's October 5th on Friday, uh, Friday October 5th at 5 o'clock, uh, and more details are online. So I'm welcoming back uh, Russ Ganim and Anna Barker now. We're going to talk about Napoleon as represented in film and literature. This will be fun, I think, special areas of focus for these two uh, scholars next to me here. And um, should we start first with uh, Tolstoy, maybe? Uh, Anna, I'll, I'll turn to you for a little conversation about, about uh, Tolstoy and Napoleon. Uh, well, Tolstoy had a very negative view of Napoleon. Um, in the previous segment, he talked about the fact that the Romantic movement initiated this emphasis on the individual. Tolstoy didn't think much of individuals. Um, he felt that um, the national spirit of Russia was what defeated Napoleon at the end. 
And I just wanted to let everyone know that we have a uh, reading of War and Peace happening right now. It's right below us in the um, Old Capitol Supreme Court chamber. Um, last time I checked, we're on page 580. <laughs> um, only 720 pages to go. Uh, we hope to finish by Sunday night. We uh, read yesterday from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m. We'll be here till 9 p.m. tonight, and then Saturday and Sunday from 9 a.m. till 9 p.m. and on Sunday till we finish. So uh, we'll need hugs mm -hmm. by Sunday afternoon. Please, please stop by and, and be listeners, be in the audience. It would be wonderful to have someone um, actually in front of us while we, while we read this book. Um, why War and Peace, why Tolstoy? It is the Russian national epic, and it is about the War of 1812. When Tolstoy started doing research for this book, he realized that the invasion of Napoleon in 1812 um, began a long before that date, and he goes back all the way to 1805, just before Napoleon's victory at Austerlitz, which was an amazing uh, military victory. Um, Napoleon defeats, it was called the, the Battle of the Three Emperors, Emperor Franz II of Austria, Emperor Alexander I of Russia, and Emperor Napoleon of France. It was a monumental defeat for, uh, for Austria and, and Russia, um, and it was fought on the one-year anniversary of his coronation. Um, there's a wonderful moment in Volume 1 of War and Peace where the Russian troops are stationed across the river, and they see meandering lights on the other side of the river in the middle of the night, and they are wondering if the French are going to attack in the middle of the night. Uh, which would be absurd. Um, people did not fight. They, they fought, fought from, from dawn to dusk and quit for the night. Um, what, what was happening was Napoleon was walking around the, the field um, checking on his troops, and they knew that it was the first anniversary of her, his coronation, so they lit torches as he was walking through, and it was a sort of a torch-lit walk um, between, between his sleeping troops. Um, so War and Peace begins in 1805. It ends with the Battle of Austerlitz at the end of the first volume. And the astonishing thing is that in volume two, Napoleon is a good friend of Russia. Actually, uh, Andrei uh, Balkonsky, who is the person wounded at the end of volume one, becomes the implementer of the ideals of the Napoleonic Code in Russia. He's hired by Speransky, who was um, in charge of the law, a new law code of Russia, and he's implementing the ideals of the Napoleonic code in Russia. The Russian Emperor Alexander I meets with Napoleon frequently. There are many balls um, where both emperors are present. And then the second volume ends with the comet of 1812 blazing in the sky, and one of our characters realizing that this could be a bad omen or perhaps the beginning of new life, and that's, of course, Pierre Bezukhov. And then the third volume is dedicated to the War of 1812. A couple of facts. Napoleon marches into Russia in July of 1812, was approximately, and it's hard to confirm numbers, every source gives different numbers, was approximately six to 700,000 troops. He leaves in December of the same year, was 50 to 70,000 troops. Wow. It was a monumental, monumental defeat. Um, he fights one enormous battle, the Battle of Baradino, the 200th anniversary of which Russians just celebrated with great pomp and circumstance, an enormous reenactment. I actually visited that battlefield this summer, and it is a very, very moving place. It's very similar to, um, to the battlefield of Gettysburg. There are many monuments, museums. Um, it's a very, very moving experience. Um, the battle was a pyrrhic victory for the French, another, another one of those victories, and they would have lost the war. The Russians withdraw. Um, the French move into Moscow, and there's no one there to greet them. And Napoleon waits around for about a month um, to see if anyone would bring the keys to the city on a velvet cushion, <laughs> as a civilized nation ought to. But Russia was not a civilized nation, and they burned Moscow down. 
Um, so Napoleon is without winter quarters, very far away from home base, um, and he starts withdrawing from Russia. It was a very, very unpleasant two-month stretch. Um, so this, the third volume of War and Peace is dedicated to 1812 and then continues on into the fourth volume. Uh, Tolstoy's view of history was great men don't make history. History is a wave-like structure and great men are made by the great moments in history. But he, um, he has a very negative opinion on Napoleon for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, oh my, thank you. <laughs> well, well, we'll come back to you to more about literature, but I, I'd like to turn to Russ now so that we can talk a little bit about one film in particular and, and expand beyond that as much as you like. But, but I know that one of the films we were gonna talk about tonight is this very, very interesting film by Abel Gans from 1927 called Napoleon. Tell us about this film. Sure. Um, when Anna and I talked about, you know, how all of this was going to come together, and Anna deserves most of the credit, <laughs> along with Sean and everybody at the museum, for organizing all of this, uh, we had talked a little bit about this film, and I had kind of insisted that this film be shown. Um, <laughs> it is an absolute masterpiece of, of world cinema, and the official title is Napoleon vu par Abelgans. So Napoleon seen or as seen by Abelgans. Um, it's a silent film. It came out in 1927. And the history around it is, is very, very rich. But I'll say at the beginning that if Tolstoy had a negative view of Napoleon, Abelgans had a very positive. <laughs> this is sort of the romantic Napoleon in all its splendor. Uh, there, there are some ambiguous moments in the film, but basically this is a celebration of who Napoleon was. Uh, it's, it's interesting because the film came out, as I said, in 1927, so we're in the period between the two world wars. Uh, world War I had ended, France was devastated in World War I. As we know, most of the battles in World War I took place in France. If you look at a, a place like Verdun, um, a million people were, were lost. I mean, there's just unimaginable uh, uh, carnage. And so France was looking to resurrect its heroes. It was a very nationalistic time, some would even say a proto-fascistic time in France. So it looked to its past, and I don't think it was any coincidence that uh, in that same year, um, you had Carl Dreyer's masterpiece, La Passion de Jeanne d'Arc, The Passion of Joan of Arc, unbelievable film. They're both just absolutely magnificent, and you must uh, see them. Um, so you have, on the one hand, Joan of Arc, and then Napoleon, both you know, in sort of a military context, although the, the Passion of Joan of Arc is not a military film at all. It's more sort of religious and spiritual in its, uh, um, in, in its thrust. But with Abelgans' Napoleon, and I think we're showing it, what, October the 7th? At 6 p.m. from 6 to 10. It's a very long film. Okay? So uh, make sure you have dinner beforehand. We kind of debated, are we going to start at 5? We're going to start at 6? So anyway, it's, it's, it's going to be at, at 6, at 6 o'clock. Originally, Abel Gans uh, was going to make six films on the life of Napoleon. But he ran out of money after one. <laughs> so, uh, and, and this film... Um, is uh, it, it's wonderful for, for, for several different reasons. If I, I mean, I'm not a, a film historian by, by trade, but I, I've taught the film, and there are allusions to all sorts of uh, genre of film. It's, it's part horror movie, it's part Western, uh, it's part romantic comedy, the scenes with, with Josephine. So it's got 
uh, it, it's sort of a synthesis of different, different types of film. Also, uh, there are allusions to um, uh, Eisenstein, to D.W. Griffith, uh, so it's very much sort of in that cadre of, of, of world cinema. Uh, another thing to say about the film is that from a technical standpoint, it's an absolute masterpiece. Uh, you see all sorts of different camera angles. Uh, you know, they, they mounted cameras on horseback, uh, upside down on horseback. They mounted cameras on swings, on pendula. Uh, there's all sorts of different uh, editing tricks and uh, different uses of, of, of montage and lighting. And it really kind of set the standard for world cinema just from the, the, the technical point of view. Uh, so uh, it's, it's something that I think every, everyone has to see. And when I've taught the film, you know, students were very skeptical because they'd never seen a silent film before. They'd never seen a film in black and white either, and yet they see this and they're just absolutely mesmerized by it. Um, uh, do I still have time? Or oh, am I? Please, okay, okay, yeah. all right. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in the 1980s, and some of you may remember this, Francis Ford Coppola reissued the film. Um, I think this was about 1983, 1984. And his father, Carmine Coppola, wrote a new score for the film. The score is absolutely marvelous. Um, this was both, uh, and Coppola's influence on the film was both a good thing and a bad thing, in the sense that uh, the complete film is six hours long. Uh, and Kevin Brownlow, a British film historian and filmmaker, has put together uh, the complete version um, with a new score. And it was shown in Oakland, I think in March or April of, of, of last year. The problem, though, is that Coppola owns the distribution rights, and he won't allow the film oh. to be shown unless it's with his father's score. Oh. Oh. So very few people have seen this Brownlow film, and I and, and you know it, <laughs> my hope is that someday mm -hmm. you know uh, we we will have access to it. So we should yeah. probably you know um, right start our own little French Revolution <laughs> to have. Uh, 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 um, a couple of other things that, that I would say about uh, about the film are, you see um, what uh, tributes to the film in modern cinema. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen the film Saving Private Ryan, mm -hmm. but there's uh, a scene kind of in the beginning of the film where the Tom Hanks character is down in a trench, and he holds up a mirror to look and see what the mm -hmm. enemy's doing on the mm -hmm. other side of the hill. That's right out of Gonsa's Napoleon. And that scene comes out of uh, the, the snowball fight, which opens Gonsa's Napoleon. And it is an absolute classical world cinema. It runs about 12 minutes. And the first line is, Napoleon is outnumbered 20 to 60. You know? <laughs> and you know, it's kind of melodramatic. How is he going to get out of it? And so you see his strategy of, of retreat and attack. And he gets, you know, and um, his, his enemies put coal in the, in the snowball, so, so they're cheating, and they hit him in the face yeah. with, with the snowballs, and, and, and Napoleon is undeterred, and so he, he uh, leads kind of like a single-person attack against his enemies, <laughs> and the, the scullery cooks help him out, and so he's got the people behind him, and so all of this foreshadows the, the revolution, mm -hmm. but 
you know, the, the mirror at the beginning is something that Spielberg picked up because obviously yeah. Spielberg is, uh, you know, is a film historian and a lover of film too. Um, and another movie which, you know, is maybe a little bit less popular but has um, one scene that is uh, dedicated to, or that um, is a tribute to uh, uh, Gans' Napoleon is uh, Quills with, with Jeffrey Rush. It's yeah. about the, the Marquis de Sade. Um, in, in one scene that kind of depicts the, the, the revolution, you see this big burly guy uh, wearing no shirt and kind of a funny hat. And in French is written, death to tyrants. Mm -hmm. okay. That comes right out of Gans's Napoleon uh, because they filmed the revolution and then there's this very famous scene where the ghosts of Danton and Robespierre and Saint-Just and Marat come to Napoleon and say, you are the answer to the revolution. You must take over. And it's, it's very <laughs> operatic. It's very <laughs> epic. Um, and so it's, uh, on one level, it's kind of hokey. But on another level, yeah. it's, an absolute, uh, it's an absolutely brilliant scene. Oh, yeah. I, I, I'll tell you, in preparation for the show, I wasn't sure I really wanted to watch a four-hour black and white uh, movie that you know had just a few little screens with a little bit of text in it. This is such a fabulous movie, and, and mm -hmm. I loved every second. What you've described here is just great, but one of the things that I think this film does just so well mm -hmm. is to walk us through that whole terrible period of the terror. Because, mm -hmm. you know, you, we're talking now about Napoleon without really very much reference to the terrible disarray that, that had um, gone on for, what, how, however many years of this just unbelievable terror. And that, I think, is shown just brilliantly in this movie. <laughs> Right, right, and there, you know, that's sort of where the horror film comes yeah. in because people are sort of depicted monstrously. There's a sort of strange lighting. There's organ music. <laughs> uh, so again, you know, on, on one level, that's kind of cheeky. On another level, uh, you see kind of a, a more introspective side of Napoleon during that yeah. period because, or d during that, that scene, because he's sort of sitting at his window looking at the people marching below. Sometimes there are decapitated heads on spikes and things like that, and he just sort of looks sad and dejected. Gans was a pacifist, and yet the war scenes are depicted not quite so so favorably. Yeah. It's not this kind of, it's not a celebration of war. It's a celebration of Napoleon, yeah. certainly. But it doesn't glorify war, I don't think. And it ends at a, at a high point for Napoleon. Right, you right. Don't, you it don't it ends with the invasion of, of Italy. <laughs> Basically, Italy is going to be plundered, and Napoleon tells his troops, "Well, I will promise you riches that you could never, n never imagine. You will, you will, you will, uh, you will gain access to, to to this land and all of the, the, these wonderful treasures." And so you see the army sort of descending down the mountains, <laughs> and then Italy being you know, pillaged, essentially. <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're not supposed to see it that way. Yeah. <laughs> and Napoleon was greeted as a, as a liberator in Italy mm -hmm. because sure, Northern Italy sure. was under Habsburg rule at that time period. Right, right, so right. they were thrilled to, mm -hmm. to see this energetic young man come right. and liberate them from the Habsburgs, but then they were a little mm -hmm. concerned when the treasures were starting. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, and in a sense, it's kind of good that the film ends there because Napoleon's future is ahead of him. I know it was an accident because they had planned six, you know, five other movies and just didn't have the funding for it. Um, but it's, you know, Napoleon is still very young. I don't think he's any more than 31, 32. Uh, and yet, uh, you know, we see this, this bright future ahead of him. So it's, uh, it, it, would be, it would have been interesting to have seen how Gans had depicted the empire, the invasion of Russia, uh, Waterloo, um, and uh, sort of the, the, the less uh, positive aspects of Napoleon's reign. Great. 
The other thing that's fun about it, I think, is the relationship with Josephine, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because you see her, her prior life. She had been married and had one or two children. Two children, two a children. boy and a girl. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, so that's very interestingly done in this movie as well. Tell us about other um, portrayals in, in literature of uh, Well, there is Napoleon. a wonderful poem by Mikhail Lermontov called Baradino, and it is a poem um, written by a young man um, who was not around to fight Napoleon. I mean, the tragic thing that happens to Europe after the fall of Napoleon, French young men like Julien Sorel in The Red and the Black are completely devastated that Napoleon is gone because he offered young men like that a chance to reach glory. And uh, it's hilarious to read The Red and the Black. I just read it this summer. Um, when Julian is even approaching women, um, he always asks himself, what would Napoleon have done? Um, <laughs> there's also um, a portrayal of um, Napoleon in uh, the Charterhouse of Parma, um, of Stendhal. And um, there's a handsome young Italian boy who decides that there is this battle fought in this no-name place, Waterloo. And he decides to go and check it out. Um, his name is Fabrizio Del Dongo, and he witnesses the Battle of Waterloo as a complete outsider. Of course, Tolstoy read that novel, and for him, the portrayal of a military battle by an outsider becomes absolutely fascinating. That's why um, he portrays the Battle of Ulm in the first volume, the Battle of Schongraben, and the Battle of Austerlitz in the first volume of War and Peace. Uh, the Battle of Baradino, the Russian battle, happens in the third volume, but it is seen through the eyes of an outsider, through the eyes of Pierre Bezukhov, who knows nothing of military tactics and strategy. And what is so important for Tolstoy is the human toll of war. What Pierre sees is absolutely horrifying. Um, dying men, dying horses. Um, and it, it, it shakes him uh, to the point where he feels that he finally, um, at, at, after, I don't know, 800 pages of wondering what to do with his life, he decides that he found his mission he's going to kill Napoleon Bonaparte. And for that reason, he decides to change into peasant clothes, stay in Russia during the occupation, and catch up with Napoleon and kill him. Um, of course, Pierre has a soul, which is very important for a Tolstoyan character. And instead of killing Napoleon Bonaparte, he saves three human beings. First, a French officer, then an Armenian woman, and then a little girl whom he captures out of the fire. So Pierre is a sweetheart. He has, uh, he has a heart of gold. Um, he could never harm a fly. But he becomes a, um, a prisoner of war um, with the retreating Napoleonic army. So we get a chance to see the Battle of Baradino through the eyes of an outsider. And then we get to witness the retreat of the Napoleonic army and the depiction of the corpse thrown roads of Russia is absolutely horrendous. Um, the Cossacks become a huge part of the expulsion of Napoleon from Russia. There is a huge partisan war going on all through November and December of 1812. And in, um, on Christmas Eve of 1812, um, Alexander I proclaims victory over Napoleon. What is even more stunning, in 1815, Alexander I and his army march into Paris. This is a country that was considered the backwater of Europe. It was so far away from any kind of central action in Europe that it was astonishing that it was Russia who stopped Napoleon, who were at this point controlled all of continental, continental Europe, just about. Um, and all of a sudden, it was Russia, um, this, this country that was not a huge player um, in, in all of the uh, wars and all of the historical events of Europe, Central Europe, who, um, who defeats this great man. Um, 
Tolstoy's mission in this novel was manifold, but um, he really wanted to show what great human folly can lead to. And for him, Napoleon is not even a tragic hero, but um, almost a pathetic hero. Um, he has one of his characters, Nikolai Rostov, who is a cavalry officer, assess Napoleon's posture on a horse. And being a cavalry officer, he can assess how a man sits on a horse. And his opinion of Napoleon's horseback riding posture is very negative. So it's amazing how Napoleon just constantly tweaks the image of Napoleon. And um, he, he goes from this very heroic portrayal of Napoleon standing on the battlefield of Austerlitz exemplifying glory to almost this pathetic representation of Napoleon. And you probably have seen New Yorker cartoons of Napoleon riding huddled on a little horse mm -hmm. through um, snowy fields of Russia. So mm -hmm. that, that is what we leave Napoleon at the end of War and Peace. Right. Yeah, are, are there any other references you'd like to mention? Well, just, just w one other thing about you know, riding on, on horseback, because um, uh, Another aspect of, of, of Vigan's film, and I think we're going to be able to reproduce this, although I'm, I'm not sure, is that at the very end, you see the sort of triptych of, of images uh, because one screen, or the symbolism is very, is very prominent because one screen is not enough to hold Napoleon. Um, he needs three, especially uh, when he's about to invade Italy and launch his glorious conquests. <laughs> And so you see his, mar his armies marching you know, across this, this triple screen, as it were. Napoleon first, obviously, and then just these, these you know, one regiment, one, one battalion after another. Um, and at the Academy Awards, um, it's a show that I usually don't watch, but my favorite part of the Academy Awards is the in memoriam mm -hmm. section, yeah. um, you know, because it talks a little bit about the history of film and you know old movie stars that have died. It kind of you know harkens back to the the black and white era and things like mm -hmm. that. And I think it was in 1997. It was like the 50th anniversary of, of of the film. They actually during that segment in memoriam showed the the triptych, you know, and the horses, you know, mm -hmm. and Napoleon marching in the background, which is very moving, yeah. you know. And, you know, you think about the, you know, the Academy Awards as being all, you know, a, a, you know popular cultural phenomenon. But here, I mean, there was a nice tribute, a nice homage yeah. to uh, a marvelous film. Yeah. Wow. So these, the, the film dates are, there are a number of films that are going to be shown here in early October. Well, there are a number of versions of War and Peace. Yeah. Um, the Russian version made in the um, 1960s is about seven hours long, and we're going to show the whole film on October 6th. Um, in the evening of, uh, of that day, we're going to show the Prokofiev opera, War and Peace, which was written during World War II in Russia. And um, speaking of propaganda, um, Stalin was the ultimate um, censor of that opera. He wanted to make sure that Prokofiev produces a wonderful piece of propaganda that would highlight the um, struggle of the Russian people against yet another invader. It's fascinating that in Russia, the War of 1812 is called the Patriotic War of 1812. Second World War is called the Great Patriotic War. So there's the definite connection between the two wars. Um, so we'll show the opera um, in the uh, presentation of the Kirov Opera and Ballet Theater. Then the next day, October 6th, we're going to show, October 7th, I'm sorry, Sunday, we'll show the American War and Peace with Audrey Hepburn, which was made actually in, uh, she's Natasha Rostova. 
which was made in uh, the 1950s. As a matter of fact, when Sergei Bondarchuk decided to make the Russian version of War and Peace, the American version already came out, and he had to find an actress who looked sort of like Audrey Hepburn because she became the iconic Natasha Rostova. Um, after that, we'll, we'll show a very unusual Russian film called The Russian Ark, which uh, basically highlights 400 years of Russian history, and the entire film is filmed in the Winter Palace in the Hermitage. Um, and then last but not least, we'll show the Gantz Napoleon on October 7th, Sunday at 6 p.m. Oh, fantastic. So lots to go see and, and lots to read. And, and good luck with finishing uh, the reading of War and Peace that were this weekend. It's wonderful. And so thank you, Anna Parker and Russ Gannon. Thank you so much. Thank you. going to take a little bit of a turn now in the focus of the program because we're going to bring the conversation home to Iowa. Um, as we've already mentioned here, you might think of Iowa as being an awful long way away from Napoleon and Napoleonic activity, but maybe not so much. And here to help us uh, understand some of these connections are Greg Prickman, just next to me, head of UI Special Collections and University Archives. And next to him is John Dorshuk, state archaeologist of Iowa. And Shala Wilson-Ashworth is at the far end there, associate director of the Old Capitol Museum, where we are just now. So thank you and welcome. And uh, Greg, you wrote a piece that was in uh, Iowa Now uh, yesterday, I think, uh, about some of these connections with Iowa that people may not really be familiar with. Uh, uh, let me ask you to sort of start us off. Uh, well, sure. I mean, I, I think, uh, first of all, of course, uh, in this era, there was no Iowa as we understand it. It's, it's land. It's, 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 it's part of land that had been uh, passed back and forth. Um, you know, we could talk about what it means to own um, a, a piece of land, but I think, you know, Sean mentioned earlier the, this idea that um, as far as Johnson County is concerned, um, where we are now, that, that Napoleon sort of looms over the early history of the area, not only because of the Louisiana Purchase, where this land was once again uh, traded between European hands and then into American hands, um, regardless of who was actually living here at the time. Um, but then, you know, th there's this trading post, essentially, um, and I think the early history of this area has a lot to do with trade um, in this era. And um, it, it grows into a town, and they name it Napoleon. Um, and I, I'm not sure that, that we know exactly why that name was chosen, but I think it, it makes good sense. Um, you know, given the, the, the time, 1838, um, that this was going on. Um, but I, I think that um, the, the, the fact that, that there was actually um, conflict and action as a part of the War of 1812 in Iowa um, is something that is not well known. Um, and I think, um, you know, as John and I started talking about the work that, that the Office of the State Archaeologist has been doing, um, uncovering traces of, of this past. Um, you know, in Special Collections, we have a lot of books and documents that, that describe various takes on this activity, but um, what we're going to try to do is to bring some of that documentary material together with um, some of the artifacts um, and the real physical evidence of, of the, the lives and activities that people led here um, I think it'll be a really interesting opportunity. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that leads us right to you, John. So, so what are some of these artifacts that have been discovered? Well, to to put the artifacts in the context, uh, the location of Fort Madison uh, has been well known for a long time. In fact, the 
uh, the second state archaeologist of Iowa, Marshall McCusick, excavated there in 1965. Uh, it was under a parking lot that was part of the Schaefer Pen Company building, mm -hmm. which is one of the big employers, was one of the big employers in Fort Madison for many, many years. Uh, but there had never been any research done on the battlefield associated with the fort, whether it was even intact or not. And the opportunity came up in uh, 2009 for us to revisit uh, down there in Fort Madison. We got a small grant from the State Historical Society that enabled us to go down for uh, a week. And we excavated some trenches based on historical documentation of approximately where the location of the, the battlefield should be if, it's, if in fact is intact. And uh, we were lucky given our small window of time and, and opportunity and uh, we were able to, in fact, find that portions of the battlefield are intact, which is, uh, which is really amazing because there's only two places in Iowa that we have evidence uh, historically in terms of the, the, uh, the written record that War of 1812 um, battles took place. One is in Fort Madison. The other is Credit Island, which is a, uh, an island in the Mississippi River um, just east of Davenport. Uh, and there's ongoing work there to try to document physical evidence of, of battle. We know from written records that there was a, a running river battle over the course of about two days from Rock Island down uh, south of there. Zach Taylor and, and his forces were defeated by a combined British and American Indian force, uh, turned back basically from retaking uh, Fort Shelby at, at um, uh, Prairie du Chien. So uh, Credit Island may or may not have physical evidence, but uh, Fort Madison very much does, and uh, we're delighted that we were able to discover that. And one of, the, one of the fun aspects of looking at historical documents is that you get people's descriptions who didn't realize they were writing for us today. They were just writing a letter back home or writing a report to their commanding officer, describing conditions relatively mundane. Uh, and uh, one of the issues with Fort Madison was the locational choice was a poor one from a uh, military standpoint. It really wasn't a good place for a fort, as it turned out. And one of the reasons for that is that there was a ravine that cut down from the, uh, the, the, uh, the, through the river terrace and, uh, as it turned out, provided ideal cover for the Native American uh, forces who were interested in ousting this uh, fledgling American fort. And we were able to find that landscape feature uh, cutting down through the layers of the parking lot and through historic fill layers from the early 1900s and the late 1800s and the 1850s, the establishment of Fort Madison as a town in the late 1830s, and finally down to this layer and, um, and this landscape feature. And uh, so I think I got to stand approximately where Black Hawk stood when he was looking at the fort and encouraging his uh, allies to, you know, let's get these Americans out of here. We don't want them on the west side of the Mississippi mm -hmm. if we can help it. So it's mm -hmm. pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. So for those of us who are fuzzy about the War of 1812, the, the young United States was at war with, Brit with Britain. Napoleon was putting pressure on Britain too, so, so Britain was, and Napoleon sort of wanted to get, he was, he was happy to get the money for the Louisiana Purchase because he had other plans in Europe and in, and in England. So Thomas Jefferson per makes the Louisiana Purchase, which is the area which includes Iowa. Mm -hmm. And um, this fort then was built by the young American colonies. Yeah, that's right. Um, once the purchase was made, um, you know, one of the things that has to happen if you're controlling an area is that you have to, you have, to have some knowledge of it. So mm -hmm. there had been, uh, th there was a, a network of, of trading posts and, and um, there was some river trade, but 
um, the things you have to do is map. You have mm -hmm. to create maps and you have to create descriptions of the landscape and who's inhabiting it where. And so there were explorers sent out to do that um, on behalf of the United States. Um, that then resulted in the establishment of this network of forts, which was meant, again, it, it comes down to trade. They, the, the forts were really there to sort of establish some control of, of, over who was trading what with whom. Right, right, right. But as you say, this, this fort, was it the first one to the west of the Mississippi? Uh, no, actually, uh, Fort Osage was built uh, before that on the Missouri River in, in the, what's now the state of Missouri. So it technically is farther west, but also farther south. So mm -hmm. in what's often called the, the upper part of the, of the Mississippi Valley, uh, Fort Madison then was one of the, the earliest, if not the first, and, and definitely the first on the west side of the river. Uh, mm -hmm. Fort Shelby and Prairie du Chien is on the east side. Uh, there were other forts in Illinois, or what became Illinois and Wisconsin. So, uh, the the attempt to make a fort on on the west side of the river was a very important mm -hmm. step, and that uh, was started in 1808. So, well before the War of 1812 actually commenced, uh, but it was placed there in order, as as Greg pointed out, to control uh, trade. And um, the British had dominated trade in what was the Louisiana Purchase, even though that was nominally French territory, the French really didn't have a military presence or um, uh, at that point in time, the energy to put into the trade mm -hmm. that they had uh, in the previous century. So the British had really moved in and were actively fomenting American Indian allies against the, uh, the fledgling United States and in that way sort of boxing in our westward expansion efforts. And uh, the Louisiana Purchase obviously on paper gave us access to a tremendous amount of land that uh, previously had been uh, another country's. Uh, we're forgetting, of course, here that there were a huge number of American Indian populations uh, all across that area that they felt that that was their land. Mm -hmm. um, but if the United States was to grow, it needed to push westward, and uh, Mississippi was a major boundary that needed to be crossed, and uh, Fort Madison was intended to enable that. Yeah. But right off the bat, uh, the American Indian populations uh, resisted, and uh, Black Hawk was one of the key individuals in, in organizing some of that resistance. Hmm. So what are some of the things that you're finding? That yeah, well, we, uh, I, I went out with great hopes of finding buckets full of, of, of buttons and other mm -hmm. paraphernalia off of, off of uniforms that might have preserved and pieces of rifle and other gear. And I was disappointed that we didn't find that much, but we really did open up a very tiny tiny window in terms of the, the area that we had time to explore. Uh, more importantly was reestablishing the landscape details. But then within that, we found appropriate pieces of, um, of uh, uh, historic ceramics, chinas and other things with patterns that were suitable for that time period. So we know that they were associated with probably the officers and the officers' wives who, who occupied the fort for the five years that it was in existence. We found uh, a variety of metal objects, uh, again, uh, cut nails that match the time period. Um, surprisingly, we found well-preserved wood uh, artifacts, which is, which is very atypical for Iowa. Usually the Iowa climate is, is very hard on wood and it rarely lasts more than 50 years or so, but we were able to find, particularly in this deep ravine cut, uh, preserved wood that had been shaped with metal tools, so we knew that it was, again, appropriate for the fort time period, a uh, portion of a barrel, a portion of probably the, uh, a window uh, framing uh, that might have been on one of the blockhouses. 
Um, and then lots and lots of just chips of wood that obviously came from them cutting all the timber on this terrace to create the stockade of the fort yeah. itself. Yeah. So that was pretty exciting. Yeah. And so does work continue there now? Um, uh, no, at this point, uh, we, we just had the limited amount of money. Uh, it is in private ownership. The, the pen company was dissolved in 2007 and the property split. So the fort itself is on one block. The battlefield is on the adjacent block to it. But uh, happily, I can report that the Archaeological Conservancy is in negotiations even as we speak with uh, the current owners hoping to uh, purchase the battlefield area and preserve wow. it. Great. Oh, thank you, John. And, and Charlotte, let me turn to you a little bit so you can tell us about the exhibit here related to the War of 1812 in the old Capitol Museum. Well, we've been very lucky this fall to have uh, a couple exhibits, obviously, relating to 1812. Uh, working in collaboration with Greg and John and the Special Collections and State Archaeologists, we will have a small exhibit here on the second floor right outside the Senate chamber that will focus on Iowa and the fort and that time period. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the lower level, is there, uh, that, that's where the Napoleonic The Napoleon exhibit is? is down on the first floor, right as you come in the front door to the left in the Pentecrest Gallery, Arts for Humanities and Sciences. Yeah. yeah. Well, this is slightly um, edging toward a different topic, but I, I, I think may, you may have some perspective on this as well. I know that you are doing an exhibit on the Civil War and on, particularly on life, life at home. What was it? What was it like for families? What was the, the what was home life like during our uh, Civil War? Do you have any such detail related to this earlier period of 1812? In the exhibit that we're doing with the state archaeologists, mm -hmm. uh, I know John and Greg have been working closely at putting that kind of context together, how the soldiers lived especially, um, how the Native Americans interacted and mm -hmm. didn't interact one way yeah. or the other. Yeah. Yeah, this, this was the frontier, so the, mm -hmm. the, the life that, the, that people led. Um, certainly the Native American culture was highly developed um, in terms of their home life and rituals. I think. Um, the fort itself, uh, the, one of the pieces that will be on display has a very brief mention of um, the, the conflict that was taking place. It was published in a newspaper in New York uh, called The War, which was dedicated to documenting what we now call the War of 1812. Um, and they, in describing what had happened, they described the fort itself as a cell. It's a very negative um, uh, depiction of what it was like to live, um, and it's in a newspaper, so it's probably over-dramatized, mm -hmm. but I think the conditions were um, probably not great. Yeah. yeah. As, as part of the um, War of 1812 exhibit that, that Shala mentioned, uh, the opening night, which I think we've agreed is October 11th, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll have a historian, um, Eugene Watkins, who um, specializes in uh, the War of 1812 and specifically Fort Madison. He's currently uh, employed by the city as the curator of their reconstructed fort that's down there that you can go and visit. But uh, Eugene will be here the evening of October 11th in this room, uh, and we'll have a talk on, on some mm -hmm. of those details mm -hmm. that he's gleaned from the historical records, because mm -hmm. that's what his specialty is, is going into those written documents. Yeah. Well, we've, we've mentioned the Native American populations that, that lived in this area, or in what we would have called the Louisiana Purchase, but haven't really spent any, any time talking about um, about their um, situation in what mm -hmm. we now call the War of 1812. Um, they were successful, apparently, in uh, their fight against, 
tell me, were the, did, did the Indians defeat the people in, the, uh, in Fort Madison at this time? And, yeah. yeah, the fort was abandoned um, following a siege. Uh, mm-hmm. So the Americans left. Um, mm-hmm. Black Hawk returned to the area to see that the fort was essentially as the Americans left, they burned the fort down. Okay. Um, so it was gone. And I think the chimneys were, were left standing, yep. and that's mm-hmm. what uh, Black Hawk uh, noted. Uh, in the exhibit, we're going to have actually two copies of Black Hawk's um, biography, autobiography mm-hmm. that, yeah. that he uh, dictated, um, which is one of the historical accounts of what happened. And we'll have them open to slightly different pages. One um, describes um, his reaction to seeing the fort being built, um, and then a, a description of some of the conflict um, that, yeah. that, that took place. But, um, you, you know, I think his account is a very interesting uh, perspective on what happened and, and what the feelings of the Native Americans were at the time. Um, what comes through when you read it is that, um, you know, they had been interacting with, with white people, um, mm-hmm. Europeans, mm-hmm. for many years at that point, and uh, his feeling, at least, is that um, in interacting with the Americans, uh, they never kept their word. Um, the British, uh, his feeling is that the British were more reliable, were more trustworthy. Um, and ultimately, uh, it was only sort of, you know, through a chain of communication that they finally learned well, there's actually a war going on mm-hmm. between the British and the Americans at mm-hmm. this point. Uh, you can imagine how long it would take when the conflict is mostly happening out east, um, yeah. how long it would take yeah. for word to, to get back here. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And as it turns out, uh, the, the fall of Fort Madison in uh, 1813 then was followed by uh, the loss of Fort Shelby in Prairie du Chien and the turning back of Zach Taylor's force that was sent out uh, later in 1814 to recapture from the British Fort Shelby, uh, and that led to the Battle of Credit Island. Uh, Zachary Taylor uh, retreated down river, established Fort Johnson on the Illinois side, and that lasted about two months, and they, were, uh, they retreated out of there because it wasn't um, adequately supplied for the winter of 1814 into 15. So basically the upper uh, Midwest remained in British control, British and Indian control, for the remainder of the war. And uh, the upshot of that is that America's westward attempt at expansion that Jefferson started through the Louisiana Purchase really stalled out uh, for two additional decades uh, until the 1830s when a renewed effort and pressure was uh, then successful at displacing Native Americans to the, to the west. Yeah. Wow, well, thank you. So interesting. We'll look forward to this uh, exhibit when it opens in early October. So thank you, Greg Prickman and John Dorshuk and Shala Wilson-Ashworth. Thank you very much. And so we're, we're going to... Um, Kind of, kind of wrap things up here with some of the guests you've already met. Heidi Krause is here, and Jen Sessions, and Anna Barker. And I, I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the the end of Napoleon. You know that we've talked about a lot of the heroic times and and um, uh, and romantic image and so on. But there was a period after this Russian campaign where things fell apart. Um, can can you? I'd like to talk about two things here, if you don't mind, Jen. Tell us what happened in Napoleon's mind or in, in history at that time that made him make that leap to be crowned emperor after, after you know. Why did that happen, and why did it happen then, and was it a big mistake? The the transition. So the, there's sort of a progression in Napoleon's career from from 
successful general of the Revolutionary Armies to a uh, member of the three-man consulate government of the, of the Revolutionary Republic to first consul among the three and then consul for life. <laughs> and then, and then emperor. So, so it doesn't come out of the blue. Um, and and basically, what happens is that the republic gets discredited um, as, as as a means of maintaining order. You had mentioned the terror earlier. the The, the French Revolution is is a, is a period of incredible violence in in its radical phase in the middle of the 1790s, and it's followed by a period of incredible instability. And so what happens during the period of the consulate leading up to the, the, the declaration of the empire is a, a sort of a series of experiments with new forms of constitutional government that are, that are trying to stabilize the situation. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the, the shift from the, the consul for life to the emperor is really sort of a, 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 another stage in that transition. I'm not a big believer in kind of psychohistory. There's a lot of speculation <laughs> about what, you know, what about Napoleon's ego would, lead, would have led him to, to, to take that step, and, and as we, we discussed earlier, you know, he certainly thought of himself in imperial terms long before he actually crowned himself emperor. Yeah. Um, but, but I think in terms of the, the politics of the period, um, the, it, it's really more of, a, of an escalation than it is right. of a, of a, a revolution, right. um, although right. certainly, Creating your crowning oneself emperor because emperor because he does crown himself. You'll see in the exhibition mm -hmm. um, some wonderful illustrations from the the coronation ceremony where he he calls in the pope and makes the pope sit there. You know the pope <laughs> having long had the, the the power to crown the kings of France. He makes the pope sit there while he crowns himself mm -hmm. and then crowns Josephine um, to to show just how powerful he has yeah. become and just how subordinate the church is to the French state. Um, but whether or not it's fatal, I think, is, is, a, is, a, is an interesting question. I think the, the military side of the empire is in some ways much more important than the political side in that regard. People in France um, were not unhappy about the empire. I mean, they, mm -hmm. they had lived with mm -hmm. kings for a long time, mm -hmm. and so an emperor was not that much of a of a of a, of a novelty yeah. to them, and and he takes care to have it ratified by the the population. Each of these stages in his progression, he has ratified by plebiscite, where you know the French male citizens are called in to um, to to vote. You know, yes yeah. or no. It's a referendum. Yeah. You don't get to say <laughs> no. And I'd rather have this <laughs> other thing. But uh, but he does at least sort of try to maintain the, the fiction of popular sovereignty. He yeah. is the emperor by the grace of God and the will of the French people. Mm -hmm. um, so so the, the revolutionary tradition is actually bound up right. in the empire itself. Right. But when does it all turn sour for him? He comes back with so many fewer soldiers than he went That's, into Russia. Yeah. And uh, this has to be devastating news, yes. too. Yeah. It, it starts to go south... Um, it starts to go south in 1808, actually, before the invasion of Russia. His big mistake is the invasion of Spain, 
um, and, the, and the sinking of about half of his forces into trying to conquer Spain the way that he had conquered Italy um, 10 years before. And, and he, gets, he gets very bogged down in Spain. Um, the kind of partisan resistance that you see in Russia in 1812 um, is, is devastating to his armies in Spain and become, the, they call it the Spanish ulcer in the, in the, the belly of the Napoleonic Empire, um, where, where Napoleon is faced with uh, guerrilla uh, resistance to the French efforts to assert their control there. Um, and so, so it's the, the, the Spanish invasion that's the beginning, and then the invasion of Russia in 1812, when, when things in Spain are, are still um, going badly. It's the combination of those two yeah. things that yeah. really is fatal in the end. And the, the reversal, the, um, the repulsion of the invasion of Russia emboldens the Spanish. It, it, um, it convinces the British and the other um, European powers to send assistance to mm -hmm. the Spanish. So that's mm -hmm. the point at which, at which Wellington is sent to Spain yeah. with a British army to help the Spanish partisans drive the French back out mm -hmm. of Spain. Um, and, and so you have Napoleon really fighting on two fronts yeah. in 1812, 1813, 1814, mm -hmm. um, leading up to finally the capture of Paris in the, in the spring of 1814. Wow. And so when was he sent to exile? Uh, well, he's first sent into exile you know, in, the, in, the, in the spring of 1814, and I probably should have looked up the exact dates, but, mm -hmm. but he abdicates when the Allies reach Paris in, in oh. April um, and then is, is exiled to the island of Elba in the Mediterranean, which... Mm -hmm. Another, you know, <laughs> New Yorker joke turns out not to be <laughs> quite far enough away, uh, and and Napoleon escapes from Elba, um, and this is actually, I think, you can see the beginnings already of the Napoleonic legend at work here because he escapes from Elba, he lands in the south of France, and he immediately is able to raise an army mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. uh, of veterans of his own. Uh, previous armies, but also a popular um, army to march with him to Paris, take power back. Um, he reinstates himself as emperor, this time with a very liberal constitution um, that looks much more like uh, you know, the constitutional monarchy of England. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and he begins to lay the, gro the groundwork for this legend of Napoleon as the, the great liberal uh, reformer and, and, and sort of bizarrely Democrat mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. that, uh, that's going to endure through the 19th century and really up to, up to World War II. Um, you can see it's at work in that Abagance mm -hmm. film um, very much in the, in the 20s. So, so it's the, the, the escape from Elba that then you know, requires that the, that the Allies get themselves together once again um, to, to fight him. And, and of mm -hmm. course, you have the, the, the invasion then of France, the famous ba Battle of Waterloo, yeah. where he's defeated in June of 1815. And then, and then they decide, OK, to really get him you know, far enough away they can't do any damage. They sent him to the right. island of Santa Helena. It's interesting so. to me that they just send him off again. I mean, there are plenty of leaders who are. I mean, the guillotine it was well used. Why, it, why did they? Why didn't they just do away with him permanently? Um, for for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that uh, if if you are one of the kings of one of or emperors of oh, one yeah, of the yeah. other European powers, <laughs> right. you don't want to carry on with a revolutionary precedent of killing right. kings right. and emperors. Right. Um, and so it, it smacks a little bit too much of revolution to engage in regicide right. yourself. Right. Um, and they're also, I think, conscious of the. Um, the symbolic power of Napoleon and, and the fear is, is that killing him would create a symbol, yeah, would create sure, a martyr, sure. um, which 
turns out exiling him to the South Atlantic mm -hmm. does pretty well on, mm -hmm. the, on that front in terms of creating symbols. Um, so they, they don't manage to prevent that. But the piece that's imposed in 1815 is, is a relatively moderate one as far as the French are concerned because what, what, the, what the Allies want at the end of the Napoleonic Wars is they want a stable France Mm -hmm. um, with, that recognizes the king, so the, the brother of Louis XVI is returned mm -hmm. to, to the throne of France. Um, and they, so they want a stable France that, that will stay within its boundaries, that will play nice mm -hmm. with, the, mm -hmm. with the other great powers, mm -hmm. and will acknowledge the authority of, of the, the other kings and emperors. So, um, so, so the punitive measure of, of killing Napoleon, imposing a very harsh mm -hmm. peace, um, is 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 not really what they're after. Yeah. No, I see. Yeah. Uh, well, Heidi, uh, what was the legacy of Napoleon in terms of art, visual art? Uh, Huge question. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wish we could have an entire two hours to devote just to that question. Um, but I can speak, if, if I can hone that in a little bit, um, what I think is probably the biggest legacy uh, of Napoleon in the arts is that we have to remember that prior to Napoleon, large-scale depictions of contemporary historical events did not exist. We looked instead to ancient Greece, to ancient Rome, uh, for our sources of inspiration, um, to historical references, to mythology, to the Bible. These are, these are the images that we would portray on such a grand scale in these large tableaus. But with Napoleon, suddenly now we're usher, ushering in modernity. And specifically, um, we can look to uh, Antoine Jean Gros, his work, Napoleon at the Pest House of Jaffa, in which now we have Napoleon, even though being represented Christ-like, uh, nevertheless, we have a, a subject from contemporary history being portrayed on an enormous scale. And before Napoleon, this never occurred. Uh, so really, with Napoleon, we usher in the origins of modern art. Uh, as, as we know it. So in incredibly important um, for, that, for that reason uh, alone, uh, in addition to the many we could discuss. Another, of course, is it's all very romantic, isn't it? <laughs> and so much so it inspired a movement, uh, and, and the movement was ushered in. Uh, and so we see artists who worked, uh, uh, specifically, I should say, students of Jacques-Louis David, uh, the, these uh, artists such as Giraudet and Gros, these are artists that would really help to usher in romanticism in art, and one can only imagine if Napoleon had not been in the mix, what romanticism would have been like. Yeah. Um, and, and so for all of his atrocities, all of his misgivings, uh, no matter what we think of him, uh, Napoleon did act as a patron for art. Uh, and so with that regard, he, he obviously has been essential. We, we can look, too, to the empire style, um, mm -hmm. right, which existed uh, certainly uh, in, in architecture, in his architect, uh, Charles Percier, uh, and Pierre-Francois Léonard Fontaine. They were his two uh, premier architects, and, and they, along with David, really helped to inaugurate this empire style, a style that still continues today, um, even in empire waist dresses, right? I mean, even in fashion. Uh, so, so really, it's so far-reaching, um, so far-reaching indeed, but um, certainly the legacy of Napoleon lives on. And, and what is interesting is that he kind of has a last laugh in art, doesn't he? Because we still are looking at his image. Uh, it's still relevant. It's still existing. As Sean mentioned earlier, you know, look at the, the year that we're in. Um, propaganda still exists. So, you know, something that we really wanted to emphasize in this exhibition, moreover, is that while you have propaganda, you have these artists working in a propagandistic fashion, this art is still 
valuable as works of art. There is still a, a inherent beauty in many of these works. Anyone who will walk into these galleries, I think, will agree that you're kind of struck by just the sheer beauty of what you see. Uh, but, of course, there's that undercurrent, right, that these are works of propaganda. Um, some commissioned by Napoleon, some not. Um, but regardless, you know, Napoleon, his legacy and his artists certainly ushering in romanticism, ushering in modernity, this is a legacy of Napoleon art. Thank you, Heidi. And, and Annie, final thoughts from you. Um, I just wanted to combine something that Heidi and Jan said about the Spanish campaign. It was called the Peninsula War and was absolutely devastating for Spain and for Napoleon. But the artist who depicted it with horrendous ferocity was Francisco Goya, who portrayed the Napoleonic invasion in its most gruesome, yeah. gruesome um, representations in his art. Um, also, um, Jan mentioned that Napoleon was not executed. Um, his brothers and sisters lived happily ever after, mostly in Italy, mostly in Florence. It was a good place to be. So everyone, everyone was content and happy to live out their lives. The one man who sadly was executed was Marshal Ney. And I'm devastated by that because he was the bravest of, um, of Napoleon's soldiers. And he was actually sent to the south of France to capture Napoleon when he came back. From, um, from Elba, and he joined Napoleon. And for that act of unsubordination, he was executed. Um, I just wanted to add that there's another wonderful novel that has to do with the Napoleonic period, and that's The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, oh, yeah. the, the young man who is sent to, um, um, he's accused of, um, of bringing correspondence from Elba to France, and that's why he is exiled um, and imprisoned. And um, of course, terrible things happen, and then wonderful things happen. So yeah. the influence of Napoleon and, um, and his image and his legacy mm -hmm. in art is uh, tremendous. Yeah. Um, it is said that on Napoleon's deathbed, he said, they wanted me to be another Washington. I, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what one finds on the internet. And, <laughs> and, uh, but in more than one place. Have you ever heard this before? I have it. I, I don't know if it's yeah. true, yeah. but it certainly is, is widely part yeah. of the, the Napoleonic legend. And, yeah. and I think it goes back to the um, sort of the, the, in some ways, the shared heritage of Napoleon and Washington as revolutionary generals who become political leaders. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and in, in that sense, Napoleon and Washington actually aren't all that different. And they mm -hmm. occupy in, in sort of the, the long run, they occupy very similar places in their national mm -hmm. uh, imaginations and their national symbolisms and their national political cultures. Yeah. The, you know, we, ha we have images of, of Washington on horseback mm -hmm. in the same way mm -hmm. that, the, that the French have images of Napoleon on but horseback. But the big difference here would be that Washington refused to be made king. Yes. And, yeah. hmm. Well, thank you for being with us tonight. This has just been great. Uh, Annie Barker, Heidi Krauss, and Jennifer Sessions. Please just stay here and we'll say our goodbyes. And, and I want to say thank you to all of you for coming to our program tonight. Um, if you're interested in watching this program again, it'll be rebroadcast on UITV a number of times. And uh, also, it will be an iTunes podcast, so you could hear it there. Um, please join us on October 5th, if you can, 5 o'clock in room 2780 of University Capital Center. Our next World Campus is on the Latino Midwest. Um, thanks to my my production colleagues in international programs, Caitlin McBride, Amy Green, Connie Shea, Shana Oli, and Christopher Clough, and to the technical team at UITV, headed up by Michael McBride and David Gamrat. So that's it for tonight's World Canvas. Thank you so much for coming, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Thank you.